Hello, I'm Nadi Singh and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? This podcast aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing secondary infections as they relate to COVID-19 and ways to prevent and treat them successfully. To discuss this are IDSA board member Dr. Helen Boucher of Tufts University and Dr. Neil Clancy of the University of Pittsburgh. Thank you both so much for joining us. Dr. Boucher, I'd like to start off with you today. Since data on COVID-19-related superinfections and co-infections is sparse, how would you characterize the role of these secondary infections in this pandemic? I would say that like many other things in this pandemic, this is an area that we're learning about. Certainly, we've seen, as have others, that secondary bacterial infections in COVID, just as in influenza, can be life-threatening and can actually uh, cause someone to lose their life. So we take them very seriously. But as you point out, we're still learning about uh, how common these are. We've seen numbers from 10% to over 50%. So we really don't have a good handle yet on the burden of these infections. I think we have much to learn. Thank you for that insight, Dr. Boucher. Dr. Clancy, turning to you now, how should healthcare professionals prepare for and prevent these both to avoid further spread and successfully treat patients? Yeah, this is an important discussion. I think we're at the point of COVID uh, now where we're beginning to get the first reports about some of the uh, complications that come along with the SARS-CoV-2 infection itself. And you're seeing reports of clotting disorders, the Kawasaki-like disease in children. And I think we'll begin to get more uh, infection, super-infection-related data coming out in the uh, the weeks ahead. I I think a a key thing uh, in your question is preparation. Um, and I think it's important to sit down and to formulate plans, in particular uh, ASP strategies, stewardship strategies that programs might use in terms of uh, diagnosing, uh, treating, and preventing uh, these infections. And I think on the stewardship end, things that can be done are formulating plans for diagnostic approaches, given the fact that um, diagnostic interventions such as BAL, uh, are limited in these kind of patients. What are we going to be able to do in terms of testing to identify and rapidly treat uh, secondary infections? What might be done? What's feasible at your center in terms of uh, biomarkers that might be used to uh, rule out infections and to guide antimicrobial uh, de-escalation strategies? And I think crucial are infection prevention measures to prevent uh, infections from spreading within COVID units. And I think a lot of our infection prevention focus is on protection of staff, protection on people who might be visiting the hospital. But we also have to keep in mind uh, that we can take steps to prevent things like ventilator-associated pneumonias, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, or central line-associated bloodstream infections that patients in hospital with COVID are at risk for. And scrupulous attention to these type of practices, I think, are are uh, key preventive steps um, that will um, help our patients and limit spread of, of infections within units. You raise some excellent points, Dr. Clancy. Dr. Boucher, turning back to you now, how much of a problem is antimicrobial resistance in secondary infections in COVID-19 patients? Well, Nadia, this is another great question and one that we're really learning about. I mean, antimicrobial resistance is a problem in all infections that we see. Um, I can comment in our experience here, we're seeing both susceptible and resistant infections 
in our COVID patients. And I think we're, as we get further along in the epidemic, we're seeing these patients who've been in the ICU for a very long time, who've survived, thankfully, but are now in the window of time where they're going to be developing secondary infections and coming up against drug-resistant organisms. So uh, we're very much you know, monitoring the situation, doing all of those things that Dr. Clancy talked about, so very important in terms of infection prevention strategies. One thing we're just learning about is whether um, nosocomial pneumonia is going to look different with all this prone ventilation that is putting the patients on their belly uh, to be ventilated when they're so sick with COVID. That's a very important question. This is a different practice than anything we've, we've done in our practice before as a routine. So that's one area of particular interest. I also think it's interesting to think about whether our infection prevention measures that we're using for COVID are going to have a spillover effect and protect patients from antibiotic-resistant bacteria. I think uh, people's focus on infection prevention has really never been higher because we want to protect everybody from COVID-19 infection. I very much hope that these measures will spill over and we'll see less in the way of resistant infections, but certainly we don't know that yet. I appreciate your insight there, Dr. Boucher. Dr. Clancy, turning to you, is our current antibiotic arsenal sufficient to meet the needs of COVID-19 patients with secondary infections? I think our, our antibiotic arsenal was spread pretty thin coming into COVID, and it's still spreads thin. And I, I really don't know that we have any kind of margin for new events or changes in epidemiology that might arise as as part of COVID. Um, I think if we were to see the emergence of new resistance mechanisms, uh, uh, for example, and this is you know a pandemic by definition, it's global, and it's arising in an awful lot of places that face differing resistance challenges from what we face in the United States. So if we were to see the introduction, say, of uh, carbapenemase uh, genes or carbapenem resistance mechanisms that have been rare in the United States up to this point. Uh, for example, some of the metallobetalactamases that are common in Southeast Asia, then those are areas of vulnerability within our, our uh, existing armamentarium, particularly our in-house armamentarium. And at the same time, uh, we've we've got barely adequate coverage in a lot of areas for common infections that we're already seeing in the United States. Well, for example, our um, ESBL-producing uh, organisms, extended-spectrum beta-lactamase-producing organisms. The recent CDC report has highlighted the explosion of these type of uh, pathogens, particularly in the community. And we need oral treatment options that we don't really have for, for these type of bugs. And if the epidemiology as a result of COVID were to change and we were to see even further growth in organisms such as the SBL producing organisms, I think that's very much an area of vulnerability within our existing armamentarium. So we were bad shape coming into uh, uh, COVID in terms of the depth of our coverage for the more resistant pathogens. And I think we're extremely vulnerable to these weaknesses being uh, exposed exploited by COVID as it goes on over the months ahead. That certainly has been a concern for healthcare professionals. Thank you, Dr. Clancy. Will rapid detection vehicles, Dr. Boucher, such as those designed to test for lower respiratory tract infections or pneumonia, help with earlier antibiotic treatment decisions for critically ill patients? We certainly hope so, but I think it's fair to say that we on the front lines still are somewhat lacking in terms of uh, rapid testing that is useful in real time. 
So to hearken back to what Dr. Clancy said, you know, we're often faced with the need to empirically start therapy in these patients who become sick and we're very suspicious of a secondary bacterial infection, right? That's the patient who's kind of gotten initially better maybe on the ventilator and then all of a sudden gets a fever and has a lot of secretions uh, from their endotracheal tube and it looks like pneumonia on chest x-ray. We have to make decisions extremely rapidly and most hospitals in America are lacking um, really good access to rapid diagnostics and, and the tests that we have still aren't uh, as exquisitely uh, sensitive, if you will, to get down to the level of what type of a resistance mechanism is in play. When you put that together with the very limited pipeline that Dr. Clancy talked about, and the fact that many of these patients also have underlying end organ disease like kidney failure, that drastically reduces our options in terms of kinds of treatment. So certainly we need better um, diagnostics that are rapid. Uh, and there's a lot of work going on in that area, but it's a very challenging area, even more challenging than drug development. A follow-up question now to that, Dr. Boucher. Can these vehicles help prevent secondary infections as well? That's an area that's really um, emerging, I would say. There are some people who believe that if you test patients when they've been in the ICU for a certain period of time, you know, at the very, even before they develop full-on evidence of pneumonia, you might be able to pick up the presence of resistant bacteria in the kind of worrisome setting and, and intervene at that time. But that hasn't really been proven in a way that's rigorous enough that would impact kind of like a clinical guidance yet. I don't know if Dr. Clancy has other ideas about that, but I think that's an area of study and of science, but not quite one where we can make clear recommendations yet. Dr. Clancy, feel free to weigh in. I agree with Helen. I don't know what really the, the role at this point we can, we can assign to these type of tests in terms of helping to prevent secondary infections. However, I think one thing that uh, we do need to take a look at is can we incorporate some of these tools to limit unnecessary antimicrobial exposure and through that perhaps reduce the pressure for the emergency resistance. So one thing that I think has not really been explored to this point but does merit investigation, for example, might be something like uh, procalcitonin-guided antimicrobial de-escalation as part of a stewardship strategy. Now, I know this is an area of some controversy, but my feeling is that really uh, there's a substantial literature out there showing obviously outside of COVID settings, that rational use of procalcitonin as part of a stewardship endeavor to de-escalate and stop antimicrobial therapy in patients who are at extremely low likelihood for actually having a bacterial pneumonia is a, a valuable stewardship strategy. Uh, we know that the more critically ill COVID patients are, the more likely they are to have elevated procalcitonin, whether that actually plays into the presence of secondary infection or not, is not altogether clear. But in fact, most hospitalized patients do have procalcitonin levels, uh, hospitalized COVID patients that should be, that are within the normal range. So at least theoretically, a strategy built upon something like procalcitonin de-escalation could be feasible. So I think these type of biomarker uh, strategies done through stewardship, which have not been explored up to this point, do merit investigation and may help us reduce pressure for further uh, resistance and in that sense serve a preventive role. Thank you both for your insight. Dr. Clancy, I'm going to stick with you. 
What impact does monitoring of appropriate infection control have on the spread of COVID-19 and the onset of secondary infections? Infection control, infection prevention is a large part of what we do with, with all COVID patients and the minimizing of risk to employees, uh, visitors, or other people who might come into the hospital, particularly those um, uh, within COVID units. And this should have some impact on reducing the spread of secondary infections within units, in particular the spread of antimicrobial pathogens within units. Uh, one thing we've noticed with staff here, uh, understandably, there's a lot of anxiety uh, about personal risk and risk to people at home and uh, who, who employees might themselves come in contact with uh, and risk for transmission of COVID to the healthcare providers. Uh, at the same time, though, we try to encourage uh, uh, our staff and ourselves uh, to not lose sight of the fact that we can also, through good scrupulous infection prevention practices that we are used to giving to patients, reduce the risk of uh, secondary infections of the patients themselves or spread of resistant pathogens within units. And I'm talking about things like uh, attention to um, risks for catheter-associated urinary tract infections, central line-associated infections, measures we can take to minimize the risk of uh, ventilator-associated pneumonias. So, you know, as we keep our attention on reducing the risk for spread of COVID itself, it's important not to lose sight of the bread and butter IP infection prevention practices that we can engage in uh, that will reduce these bacterial infection and resistance risks as well. All important points. Thank you, Dr. Clancy. Dr. Boucher, what is the role of antimicrobial stewardship programs in addressing secondary infections? Antimicrobial stewardship programs are vitally important in decreasing all bacterial infections in the hospital and in the community. Uh, these programs provide the support and the structure and the guidance to help physicians use the precious resource of antibiotics as well as possible. And that's probably never been as important as it is during the COVID epidemic. The challenge is that because these patients are so sick, because there's so much fear about uh, prolonged contact, doing diagnostic procedures and things like that, these patients are unfortunately sometimes exposed to more broad spectrum antibiotics than they need. And we know that over-treatment is one of the biggest problems. So all that adds up to us really needing good stewardship programs and support now and all the time. Unfortunately, that costs money and resources in terms of people that are very constrained in the setting of an epidemic. So there really is some uh, competing priorities, I think, in most of our institutions for what we can focus on. And I think many of us have been trying to raise, kind of raise the flag about the importance of having infrastructure like infection control, like stewardship all the time, like pandemic preparedness all the time. So we're prepared to help fight infections and, and fight resistant infections during an epidemic and not during an epidemic. And I think that's one of the important lessons we need to take away with us from something like a COVID epidemic. For those of us that are fortunate enough to have stewardship programs, they are focused very much and kind of a laser-like focused on hospital-acquired pneumonia as one of the biggest complications. But we're also seeing things like skin infections and wound infections from that practice of having patients prone on their abdomen. And there are a number of other places where we need our stewardship team's input and I'm hopeful that as we come out of this initial surge, we'll be able to kind of ramp up again and focus some more uh, from a stewardship perspective, but very, very important part of how we 
uh, treat the patients we have and how we preserve the precious few antibiotic resources that we have as well. Dr. Boucher, thank you. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any final thoughts. Dr. Clancy. Yeah, we've, we've been a bit different than I, I think Dr. Boucher's experience in that we've really been out of a big first wave epicenter here in Pittsburgh. We've certainly not seen uh, the volume of cases nor felt the stress in our healthcare system that say Dr. Boucher and her colleagues in Boston or people in, in New York certainly have faced. So that's given us a bit more time to uh, implement, I think, stewardship practices as part of what we're seeing with COVID. And we've really noticed four areas of, of focus where stewardship can make a difference. And the first is identifying those low-risk patients who have something of a COVID, classic COVID story as we understand the disease, in whom you don't need to give antibiotics at all. And particularly now, if you can rapidly diagnose COVID in-house, you don't need to send out testing. We found that 50% of our patients, we can keep off antibiotics altogether. And then among the remaining 50%, there are kind of three areas of focus. One is you'll have some small percentage of patients who come in with co-infections at the time of COVID admission. And a lot of these are cellulitis, urinary tract infections, other infections that the type of patients who are coming in are typically at risk for independent of COVID. And there the stewardship uh, endeavor is to come up with short, narrow therapy focused on the presenting infection. Uh, a second group then are the people who develop super infections that are nosocomially acquired, and these are often ventilator and hospital acquired pneumonias, but you can see bacteremias, skin infections like Dr. Boucher said. And the, the endeavor here then from a stewardship perspective is establish a diagnosis, just try as best you can to get a bug and then go with, again, as narrow a regimen as you can and limit long courses of treatment. So short treatment courses, uh, if at all feasible. And then the fourth group gets at these patients because of the nonspecific presentation of respiratory distress, fever, and concern about potential bacterial superinfections in some percentage of patients. These are people in whom empiric therapy with antibiotics often gets started uh, until such point as you're able to rule a secondary bacterial infection out. And the mission then is to stop empiric therapy as quickly as possible, and we really shoot within 48 hours. And we've had success then in all three of those antibiotic settings where in the 50% of patients who were using antibiotics, minimizing the exposure and going with as narrow spectrum exposure as possible. And I think as more time is able to be devoted to COVID patients once the first wave of the pandemic does pass and places are a little less frenetic, employing these stewardship strategies to the appropriate patients is feasible and can make a difference on overall usage and uh, selection of resistance. So I think that'll be a challenge for programs going forward to implement and track the metrics of these type of interventions. Dr. Boucher, the last word is yours. I think while we still have a lot to learn about how common these are going to be uh, in the setting of COVID-19, it's important to remember, and maybe I'll just take a 30,000 foot view, you know, we want to remember that before covid antibiotic resistance was a huge problem with 2.8 million uh, antibiotic resistant infections in our country every year and at least 35,000 deaths, probably a lot more than that. Uh, so this problem is not going away. And if we look at another recent pandemic, the H1N1 influenza pandemic, you know, that claimed 300,000 lives globally and somewhere between a third and half of those were caused by secondary bacterial pneumonia. So this is likely to be a problem and something we need to really focus on. And I think that the um, 
again, coming back to this message of needing infrastructure, uh, we need to have plans in place to deal with antibiotic resistance from a workforce perspective. We need to uh, continue to do all we can to attract people to join us in infectious diseases, one of the best fields in the world to practice. As hard as it is at this time, it's really incredibly rewarding. Uh, we need to have ways to assure that that workforce is gonna be adequately compensated for the work that they do. We need to have ways to develop antibiotics and to support people who do infection prevention and stewardship work, which is so vital, both in the hospital, but also in long-term care facilities and nursing homes where the problem of COVID is rampant and where the problem of bacterial infections is likely also to be rampant. So I think we have opportunities to really learn from this pandemic and to hopefully change things for the better for our children and their children. And thank you, very well said. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Helen Boucher and Neil Clancy for their participation and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as we invite another diverse panel of medical experts to discuss the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Nadia Singh.